0: This is the Thoughts From a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes at my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. So many fun things are happening in my Patreon community. Each month, I run three series. For the first, I highlight the titles I am most looking forward to in the following month. So for February, I focus on fabulous upcoming March titles. For the second series, I chat with a bookseller at an indie bookstore somewhere in the United States. We talk all about that bookstore, what people in the community are buying, and what that store does to give back to their community. And for the third, I speak with two bookstagrammers about their accounts. And then we have a themed literary discussion where we focus on books in a particular genre or subject matter. I have also just added two pre-publication reads and author chats. Patron participants will read electronically Home or Away by Kathleen West and The Cartographers by Peng Shepard and have chats with those authors prior to each book's publication. It is a fun opportunity that you cannot find anywhere else. The link to join is in my show notes. I hope you will consider it. I would love to have you. Today, I am conversing with Ruta Sepetis about I Must Betray You. Ruta is an internationally acclaimed, number one New York Times bestselling author of historical fiction, published in over 60 countries and 40 languages. Ruta is considered a crossover novelist, as her books are read by both teens and adults worldwide. Her novels, Between Shades of Grey, Out of the Easy, Salt to the Sea, and The Fountains of Silence have won or been shortlisted for more than 40 book prizes, and are included on more than 60 state award lists. Between Shades of Grey was adapted into the film Ashes in the Snow, and her other novels are currently in development for TV and film. Winner of the Carnegie Medal, Ruda is passionate about the power of history and literature to foster global awareness and connectivity. She is presented to NATO, to the European Parliament, in the United States Capitol, and at embassies worldwide. She was born and raised in Michigan and now lives with her family in Nashville, Tennessee. I Must Betray You will be one of my top reads of the year and I selected it as one of my February Buzz Reads picks. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm
1: Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.
0: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I am so glad you're here. I absolutely loved I Must Betray You, and I can't wait to talk all about it, and I have so many questions. Perfect. Let's go. Well, first, why don't we talk a little bit about the story? For those that won't have read it yet, can you just give me a quick synopsis? Certainly.
1: I Must Betray You is set in Bucharest in 1989 and follows the story of 17-year-old Christian Florescu who is blackmailed by the Romanian secret police to be an informer for the regime. And Christian's expected to inform and betray his parents, his grandparents, his neighbors, his teachers, even his girlfriend. And he decides that he's going to turn the tables and instead inform on the regime.
0: I was just completely fascinated and horrified often as I was reading your book about what it would be like to live under that type of regime where you don't know if people you're living with in your own home or the people you're encountering at school or in your building or anywhere are people that you have to worry about telling on you. Like that must just be so incredibly frightening.
1: I agree with you. Imagine this Type of world, this dark world of enforced obedience where you're hunted and haunted and you never know who you can trust. I think that those of us like myself who did not experience it, it's, it sounds dystopian. It sounds hard to imagine, but more than 20 million Romanians lived for a lengthy period of time under mass surveillance. And that haunted me as a writer, as I was trying to describe it, that feeling of constantly being watched, of constantly having to look over your shoulder and not knowing who you can trust. That in itself is a form of terror.
0: Absolute terror. And even in your own home and not just worrying about your family members, but worrying about surveillance in your home and where it was coming from, like they felt maybe the telephone was bugged so they would put a pillow over it. I mean, just some of that, I'm sure you... In your research, which we'll talk a little bit about in a minute, you got some of these details from people, but I just thought, how awful to be sitting in your own home and feel like you can't even talk freely.
1: Yes. And that's actually, you know, learning about the surveillance is really what even kickstarted my interest in researching. I was in Romania on tour for my first book and was sitting at an outdoor cafe with my interpreter and, and some other people from my publishing company in Romania. And um, one of the women lifted the ashtray on the table and looked beneath it. And she saw me watching her and she said, oh, sorry, habit. And I said, what's a habit? And she said, well, listening devices. You know, they they were always listening. And I said, who is listening? And she said, the blue-eyed boys, Ruda. They were listening. And I'll never forget that moment. And then, of course, I asked her to explain more and what had happened. But yeah, I don't think we can... I don't think we can understand what that would be like to constantly feel tracked like that.
0: I don't think we can either. I mean, certainly reading a book like yours opened my eyes and I wanna know even more now about what happened in Romania and what happened later, but I think you can't fully understand it unless you've lived it.
1: No, I agree. And that's also a challenge as an author of historical fiction is there are so many stories, but I have to ask myself, what right do we have to history other than our own? And I need to come up with ways that are uh, appropriate and respectful to tell these stories of of time periods that I myself didn't experience.
0: Oh, yes, but it's definitely wonderful that you do tell the story because you introduce it to a whole new group of people just like me who all think, oh my gosh, how did I not know all of this was happening? And then they tell their friends and they tell their friends and it's helpful because I do think history repeats itself. So if you can at least illuminate a period like this, Maybe that will help something not happen again.
1: Uh, I think I think you're so right. And over you know the many years of doing this now, I've realized that sometimes when stories remain hidden in the shadows and when history sort of slips you know beneath the floorboards, those who experience the history that sometimes they feel misunderstood or that the world has forgotten them. And it's not that we've forgotten them. We, we just don't know the story. And historical fiction is such a good facilitator, you know, to share story and history.
0: It definitely is. Because as I was reading, I thought if I were reading this as a nonfiction book, which I like lots of nonfiction, but I don't think it would have been nearly as compelling to me, but I learned so much, but you still had these characters that I was so invested in and you kind of dropped me in the middle of this story. And I do think there's times when story is so powerful and can do more than a nonfiction version of it.
1: I often think the same thing, that it's a benefit that we have, um, let's say, writing a novel. If it were nonfiction, maybe I would have to follow the story of one person or let's say one family. But through fiction, I can interview, as we'll talk about in the research, I can interview 100 people. I can pull threads from 25 people and braid them together to create one character. And by doing that, I hope that I'm representing a larger human experience. So if people who did experience the time period I'm writing about, when they read my book, they'll say, oh my gosh, yes, that was me. (laughs) And that's because I'm able to braid it together instead of just following one person or one experience.
0: Okay, I love that. And I'm not sure I've ever thought about that aspect of it. But that's exactly right. They can say that happened to me. But you're able to accumulate so many different people's stories. That's a great way to look at it.
1: Yeah, and I think it Well, I hope I hope it helps us look through someone else's eyes and walk in their shoes and consider their heart and, and really look objectively at the uh, entire period of history.
0: Absolutely. Well, I would love to hear more about your research. You have a fabulous author's note at the end where you talk some about it, but I'd love to hear more about like some of the people you interviewed and you even got to interview Nadia Comaneci, right?
1: I did. And I often say that I think sometimes I'm more of a researcher than a writer. I love the research so much. And I spend years and years. I start Reading all of the nonfiction that I can get my hands on to acquaint myself with the topic. Because my next step is to travel to the place that I'm writing about and put my feet on the ground. And in this case, it was Romania. And I spent years traveling to different parts of the country and and interviewing just dozens and dozens of people. Just, you know, for the context for the listeners, after World War II, Romania fell under communist rule. And then in the 60s, this dictator, Nikolai Ceausescu, came into power. And initially, his regime was fairly moderate. But as things progressed, you know, they realized this man wasn't a maverick. He was a madman. And his, his rule just became more tyrannical and more totalitarian. And so I interviewed people who, you know, who had... Interfaced with that, you know, people who were specialists with the, the secret police, the Securitate, in order to control the population, this dictator Ceausescu really um, built upon and developed this secret police force, which was had more power than even the military in Romania. If the Securitate was following you, I mean, they they could you could lose your job, you could lose your family members, you could lose your life. Um, it was really high stakes. And so I interviewed quite a lot of people who had experience with the Securitate, were part of the Securitate, or were part of, you know, the Securitate listening archives. I traveled actually to the dictator's home and uh, spent time, you know, in, in the home and looking through his closets and his wife's closets. And that was a very painful experience knowing that during the dictatorship, all of Romania's resources, they were sent to other countries and that left the Romanian people with barely anything to eat. They had to stand in line. And mind you, this was the 1980s that they had ration cards and, you know, electricity was rationed and water was turned on and off. And yet here I was in this dictator's house seeing the type of life that he and his wife lived and the disparity. It was Absolutely haunting. So that was part of the, the research as well, speaking to people, true witnesses who lived through not only, uh, the dictatorship, but through the revolution and people who were young at the time, you know, young people who had hopes and dreams and were just, you know, stifled by the regime. And they inspired me. And then I even, I met with, with even the soldier who in the end, and if you know the history, you know that the dictator was executed. I met with the man who was on the firing squad who killed this dictator. So going from meeting with, let's say, getting true witness testimony to getting historical testimony, meeting with historians and academics and even diplomats, the research process took many, many years.
0: It must have. Now, is Ceaușescu, is his home a museum? Is that how you were able to tour it? Yes. So, uh, certain aspects in Romania have been preserved
1: and his personal home is, is, you can take a tour. And my publisher arranged for me to go in and have, let's say, a more extensive tour, uh, which I, I really appreciated and to sort of be up close and, and personal with what his lifestyle uh, was like. I also interviewed foreign diplomats. One thing that this dictator uh, was so successful at was duping other countries. Ceausescu, although Romania was sort of a Soviet, you know, satellite, Ceausescu often disagreed with Soviet rule. And so the Americans, the Brits, the Canadians, they all thought, well, goodness, you know, Ceausescu, he's, you know, he's our ally then. If he disagrees with the Soviet Union. But that's not really what was, you know, what was happening. Maybe he did disagree, but really he was infiltrating the United States, stealing technology secrets and things like that. So interviewing those foreign diplomats who shared the chilling truth that, that he had duped everyone, not only his own people and his own population, but the leaders of many countries who invited him, let's say to the White House or to Buckingham Palace.
0: And I love that you had those photos at the end. It was fascinating to see him sitting there with Nixon or Queen Elizabeth.
1: Yeah, and I wonder if your listeners uh, are like me. Uh, I always hesitate to put photos in because if I pick up a book and I see that there are photos at the back, and I don't know if you do this, Cindy, I immediately go to the photos. And I, I look at the photos first and I shouldn't do that, but I do, But I and I thought, well, do I put photos in the back or do I allow readers to investigate on their own, which is always my goal. I want people to read one of my books and be introduced to a little-known historical topic and then research it on their own. But in this case, I felt that the photos were so compelling uh, that I wanted to include them in the book.
0: I love when the photos are there. And I actually don't go to the back. I just start at the beginning and read straight through. And I'm beginning to realize I may be in the minority. A lot of people start with the back. I love the photo you have at the beginning of either university students or high school students, I'm not sure which, who are riding around on a tank in the beginning of the revolution. I just thought that was fascinating. It definitely made me even more interested in the book and to get started with it.
1: Oh, thanks for mentioning that photo. That photo is something I came upon during my research and, and it made an impression on me because, you know, Romania was one of the last countries, uh, holding the Iron Curtain. And when revolution arrived, young people, high school students and college students, they took to the streets ready to fight the regime with their bare hands. They had nothing just with like their hearts defiant and they took to the streets and risked their lives. And that photo was taken by a French photographer, Luc Delahaye. And I loved it. I hung it up, you know, above my desk as I was writing as inspiration. And then I reached out to the photographer. He wasn't even represented by an agent and asked if I could use the photo. And he said, yes, yes, of course. And uh, so I licensed it from him and it appears in the front, you know, of the book.
0: Well, I loved it. And it was a great way to start the book. And back to Ceausescu, One of the things that I thought was so fascinating was that he only had like a third grade education, but he clearly was a mastermind in terms of being able to rule his people with an iron fist.
1: Yes, um, and that's something that I think not many people understood about Ceausescu. I think they underestimated him. When they learned that he and his wife had only a third grade education, they thought, oh, okay, they sort of dismissed him. But no, truly, he was really cunning and built a cult of personality and built an empire of fear to rule these people and betrayed them and used surveillance in a way to eventually not only betray the Romanian people, but in a way where they would betray themselves and become, you know, they had no choice but to become informers. And that was a really cunning
0: tactic on his part. Absolutely. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting was that he came in and demolished a fair amount of Bucharest and then just built these ugly concrete buildings. Some of them, what sounds like, weren't ever even finished and that that's where everybody had to live. I thought that was so sad.
1: It was, and during my research interviews, many of the elderly people, they lamented that destruction. They were so proud. They said Bucharest used to be little Paris or Paris of the East. And then Ceausescu had gone to North Korea and and was inspired by the communist rule there and came back and decided to destroy many of the historic parts of Bucharest. And people simply lost their homes. Uh, They simply were evicted, animals, uh, dogs, and pets, and they were just roaming the streets. And Ceausescu wanted to create these cement block apartment buildings, houses of the people.
0: And I love that you had photos of those at the end because I had envisioned them decently well, but it was actually wonderful to see what they really looked like.
1: And many of them are still there. As I was researching and spending time there, I rented a place there and spent time you see these gray cement blocks that are still half built with staircases to nowhere and, and open, you know, openings that have no windows and no window frames. They're really quite haunting.
0: And such a waste. Yeah,
1: such a waste. And also I think overall that period was, you know, such a waste of the beauty Of the country of Romania and the intelligence and talent of the Romanian people who were so isolated from the rest of the world. And as a result, we were isolated from Romania and denied the beauty of their culture and, and the intelligence of the population and all they had to offer. And Ceausescu created this narrative that really just denied us from understanding the heart and soul of Romania.
0: I think that's exactly right. And it was just kind of intriguing, fascinating, haunting, as you've said, to understand how he did it. And just to think that he was able to completely control that many people for the period of time that he did.
1: And to even control the population by instilling fear of your loved ones. Imagine husbands weren't certain if they could trust their wives. Wives couldn't trust husbands children were forced to inform on their parents. Imagine that situation. Um, Some people told me that they had one personality at home with their family, and they had another personality in the street uh, because they never knew who was listening.
0: I can't even imagine. And what was it like interviewing some of these guards or interviewing one of the people that was on the firing squad? I mean, that must have been kind of almost creepy at points, or at least a little scary. What was it like talking to them?
1: Well, first of all, I was grateful. Anytime that I am writing about such a difficult and dark part of history, I'm asking the human beings beings who experienced it to revisit that trauma. And there's such a generosity when someone, for the sake of a book and for the sake of history, will you know, will go there with me. And so interviewing this gentleman, he traveled, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers to meet with me. And the first thing he said to me was, Ruta, I need you to understand, sometimes a revolution eats its heroes. And he had described how at the time of the execution, he was perceived perhaps as a hero. But then as years passed, it became unclear how the revolution had started, who was responsible. And then the perception of his act, which was initially heroic, sort of changed. And that, again, was tragic to me, that this man who, I mean, he was military. And what happened is, you know, in December of 1989, the Romanian military joined with the people. Uh, when the revolution began, the dictator uh, gave an order to fire on civilians and, and to, to plow down civilians. And the Romanian military said, no, we're not going to do that. And, and they defended the people instead of defending the dictator. But this man, it, I just think it's 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 difficult. And, and time is the unveiler of truth, right? And it's only after many, many years that we'll be able to look back and peel back the layers. Uh, to determine what really happened. But he was very helpful because he was able to walk around the entire topic with me, not just give me one side, but gave me the side of the civilians and the side of the military and the side of the
0: regime. What about the securitate? I mean, talking to them, do they feel remorse? I mean, it would be kind of a difficult interview, I would think. People I
1: spoke with, some denied that they were connected directly to the Securitate, but just explained that they had connections, so to speak. And I I didn't push too hard. But also what they did explain to me was that during this multi-decade period, that the perception was that the Securitate was protecting Romania from evil Western forces and so to some, the Securitate, they were, they were heroic and they were patriots. And um, especially with young people, young people were told that informing was their patriotic duty and, and that was, you know, a way to protect their beautiful country. And so there was a lot of mental manipulation going on
0: with regard to the Securitate. I guess that's true. I hadn't really thought about it that way. What about the Kent Cigarette Bartering? Do you have any idea how that got started? I just thought that was such an interesting part of the story.
1: I think it is interesting. And um, I uh, come from a a family uh, that is familiar with communism. My father was born in Lithuania and fled when he was a small boy. My dad spent nine years in refugee camps before being able to come to the United States. Wow. Many of these Soviet-occupied countries, a black market would emerge generally for products or uh, you know to trade items from the West. But in Romania, the black market was more robust, it seemed, than some of my research in other Soviet-occupied countries. The black market controlled not only goods, but also services. So imagine families were tipping school teachers. And if you needed to, let's say that you're ill and you need an X-ray, you needed to have something to trade for that x-ray. It wasn't just readily available. And Kent cigarettes were something that the Romanians explained to me. Kent's were currency. And, and they were explaining how many packs of Kent's you would need to give to the dentist, or, or you'd need a bottle of vodka for this. or. And I found that, that economy was fascinating. And especially the fact that the Romanians repeatedly told me they never smoked Kents. They never smoked them
0: <laughs> because they were too valuable.
1: They were too valuable, exactly. And they simply traded, you know, the Kents. And I have memories of my grandfather in Michigan going to, you know, a, a department store and buying Levi's and then we'd go to a big grocery store and buying cigarettes and buying aspirin and things like that and cough medicine. And, and sending it secretly to Lithuania. And the Romanians told me that, that some of these black market items made it in via East Germany or Hungary or um, or countries like that. And I found that fascinating.
0: I just thought it was so interesting. And I wondered sort of the source of the Kent cigarette thing. You know, you just wonder how something comes about. Like, how did that become the currency? It's just, it was entertaining.
1: It's, it's completely entertaining. And also, the, the mythology that goes along with it, with some of these black market items, there were rumors that, for example, within a package of Kent cigarettes was a, a golden ticket for, <laughs> I don't know, you know, for, for whatever. And just in a, a situation where information is restricted, rumors run rampant. And I discovered that during research that, you know, these rumors would just because people would speak on the street, they couldn't speak in their homes and and information was shared on the street. And that's how these rumors would begin. And, And these spec, you know, when you don't have the full story, sometimes we tend to fill in the blanks on our own. And that creates speculation, which again, denied the Romanian people from the truth of the outside world.
0: I'm sure it was so eye-opening for them after the revolution and when knowledge was flowing more freely to realize everything that had been going on that they didn't know about.
1: It was, and one of the very moving interviews I had was with a group of young men who were telling me that in the 1980s, movies, at the time they were VHS tapes, you know, VHS tapes that were smuggled in from the West whether it was Top Gun or Die Hard or any of these, mo- Pretty Woman, these movies that were really popular, that when they watched a movie like that, that they thought it was fantasy, that seeing people who could go to a faucet and hot water would roll out or seeing someone who quits their job in a movie because you know, Romanians weren't able to choose their employment. They did. They were assigned an apartment, they were assigned a job, these things seemed so fantastical. And there was a man who said that when he was little, he literally thought that it was, they, these movies were all make believe. And it was only as he came into his teenage years that he learned, wait a minute, this movie was really filmed on a street that exists and people live like this. And when you open a refrigerator, there's food inside. And the way they described it, oh, it just, it brought me to tears, knowing how much we have and thinking at the time, you know, in 1989, the type of life I was living of of comfort and safety when over 20 million Romanians were, you know, were just going without.
0: I agree completely. I kept thinking about that over and over again. And just thinking it's sad, I didn't really know a lot of this was happening. And just the the dichotomy, i mean, thinking about my life versus all of these poor people. And then how frustrated and mad they must have been on top of everything else when they were kind of outside this regime to be like, oh my gosh, all this stuff's been going on and we just had no idea. Or we thought it was fantasy. We thought Disneyland was make-believe. All those types of things. It, it's just horrifying.
1: It's horrifying. And the other thing that's horrifying is that Ceaușescu wanted to increase the population. So there was a fertility tyranny that was going on. Women's bodies and fertility belonged to the state. And if you were childless, you were taxed. And women, to, to achieve the, the title of heroin mother, to have 10 children, this is what Ceaușescu wanted. And it put such pressure on women's health. And, but also imagine during this time, because Ceausescu is sending all of their best resources overseas to repay a debt, there's no food in Romania. And so people have these large families and they have no ways, no way to feed these children. And when post-revolution, this partial narrative did come out of Romania that there were these, you know, orphanages and these institutions, um, you know, with these, these poor children, um, but I think without the context of understanding that, you know, these women were, were forced, uh, you know, to, to give birth and have many children, and they were even monitored at their place of work uh, to see, to determine if they were pregnant and to make sure that they carried that pregnancy full term. And that kind of fertility tyranny just seems dystopian. And we were never privy to the full story uh, at the time or even... Directly following the revolution,
0: and so invasive, when I was reading that section, I thought, I can't even imagine something like that. Dystopian is the perfect word for it,
1: yeah, it's it's unbelievable and so humiliating and so unsanitary and and these women they 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 endured it. And you know, it certainly it wasn't every woman or every day or but the people I spoke to, you know, that was one of the things that really, stood out that they said, the world doesn't understand, (laughs) you know, does not understand this.
0: Right. There's more to this story than you're understanding initially or learning about.
1: Right. Right. And I even remember myself, again, being a child of a victim of communism. Lithuania was not on the maps in the 1980s. It just said Soviet Union, you know, they had taken the name of the country right off the map. But I remember watching the Olympics because I was such a fan of of Nadia Comaneci in the 70s, and her walking through the gym with the word Romania on her, you know, on her jacket. And I thought, Oh, my goodness, how fortunate these Romanians are, you know, unlike Lithuania, they, they can wear the name of their country across their back. And, and I had so little knowledge of what was happening. And I was fortunate to speak with Nadia during my research. And she gave me such a great perspective. She really encouraged me in the novel. She said, please focus on the sacrifice of just the, the, the ordinary Romanian person. She she explained that she had the opportunity to leave the country to compete. And she said, even though she was, of course, tracked by the securitate, and but just that opportunity that she had, and she said that the Romanians themselves, the level of endurance, you know, the force of life. That propelled them to just keep going. She said she really felt that that was an underrepresented story, and I agree with her.
0: And I think that's what really made your story so heartfelt and so page turning was that it was just the everyday people that were living this life.
1: Yeah, in terms of page turning, I each book that I approach, I have to decide what's the point of view. And you know what sort of style am I going to take on to tell this story and relay this part of history? And with this book, I felt that I wanted it to be a page turner. I I was breathless writing it, so I wanted the reader to be breathless reading it. I use an economy of phrasing, maybe as you noticed, short chapters, short sentences, almost very stark language to to convey this atmosphere, this ashen landscape, this, you know, landscape of the lost I was referring to it as. And so I hope that that does, you know, contribute to the pacing and maybe give it a more suspenseful feel.
0: It was very suspenseful. And I think short chapters really contribute to that for a couple of reasons, because as you said, they're kind of sparse and you get, you know, some some information each time, but then you're like, it's only one more chapter. It's only one more chapter. And then you just keep going and all of a sudden you're at the end.
1: And it's, it's terribly manipulative of me to do that, but I do it because I become so invested in these topics. I am so passionately connected to the people who help me with my research. In this case, you know, the, the, the people of Romania that I want you to keep reading and I'm going to do anything I can
0: to pull you forward. You succeeded. I really like your title because I think it works on many levels as i was reading i was curious about it and what you thought about it and how it came about
1: well as you know most authors we don't have final say over our title it's something that we do discuss with our publisher and our publishers outside of the united states often title the book something completely different for example in romania the book the romanian edition of the book is not called i must betray you but in the united states i was trying to think of something that Captured the harrowing nature of everyday existence. And it occurred to me that, you know, Ceausescu, he betrayed the population. He betrayed other countries. And in insisting and forcing people to inform on others, he forced Romanians to even betray themselves. But yet this one boy, he decides he's going to turn the table. This one brave young man, and he betrays the leader of the country. So it 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 is sort of multifaceted, and I hope it has several layers. But in in Romania, they are simply they call the book "The End of Whispers," December nineteen eighty nine. So very different. Oh,
0: I like that. The End of Whispers. Yep. So that works well too. Well, one thing I want to talk a little bit about. My daughter and I saw you speak years ago. And I think it was it was definitely after your first book. It might've been when your second book was coming out, but you told the funniest story about when Between Shades of Grey came out and the overlapping time with 50 Shades of Grey coming out and the confusion that caused. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. I just absolutely loved it at the time. And I tell people that story all the time. And I'm like, I need to ask her about it.
1: Oh, and it's still enduring to this day. I had thought, well, you know, as, as the years pass, you know, there will be more distance between the two books. No, Lithuania has still never looked so sexy. Um, <laughs> what, what happened um, between Shades of Grey came out and six months later, 50 Shades of Grey came out. And I remember my mom saying, you're going to have a problem. And I said, mom, there are lots of books with the same title. She said, not like this book, I said, how do you know? She said, I read it. <laughs> I said, oh goodness, okay. <laughs> and um, there were such issues initially because as you can imagine, I'm a crossover author. I do school visits. That's a, a passion of mine. And I was going to school, at schools and there were parents showing up who were protesting almost and saying, you, you cannot allow this author in the school. There were kids going home and saying, I need that shade of gray book. For school, and then the parents calling the school, "What are you doing using this book?" And this went on and on, even to the point where my my dear husband, uh, there were even confusion at work when some of his colleagues would say, "You know, wow, I, I knew your wife was a an author, but she wrote." This shade of gray. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, as the conversation emerges, my husband realizes that they're talking about 50 shades of gray, not between shades of gray. And it still goes on and on. There was a film created, an adaptation of Between Shades of Gray, and they titled it Ashes in the Snow, just to eliminate any possible,
0: possible confusion.
1: But yeah, I think as the years go on, it's you know, hopefully
0: that will die down a little bit. I can remember people talking about it on Facebook and different things and that they were thinking they were getting one book and they were getting the other. But yes, that must have been somewhat comical at times for you. And then to have to be like, no, 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 I wasn't writing Fifty Shades of Grey. This is my book over here, Between Shades of Grey.
1: Absolutely. And imagine doing events and people in the audience coming because they thought I had written Fifty Shades of Grey. That is an entirely different audience than you know people <laughs> who are coming to learn about A story about a Lithuanian girl who's deported to Siberia. As soon as the word Stalin would come out of my mouth, I would see in the audience, I would see the people looking at each other like, what is she talking about? And then realize, oh my gosh, it's the wrong shade of gray. But then on the flip side, there were people who I've received emails from who said that they accidentally purchased my book Between Shades of Gray. And they actually enjoyed it and learned something from it. And said, um, so, yeah, I, I went in for one book and I got something entirely different and I'm glad I did. So
0: there have been some benefits. Well, so you got some free marketing. Yeah, I think I did. I think I, I think <laughs> I got some book sales from it. My daughter absolutely loved your book. She just thought it was fantastic and talked about it for so long afterwards. Oh, please thank her for me. I will. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? Yeah, I actually
1: have a book on writing that is going to be coming out soon. I have a a theory that everyone has a story to tell and that the building blocks of story, of plot, character development, setting, dialogue... They, they can all be mined from our personal experience. And so it's a writer's guide to craft through memory. So it's using your own experiences to build to build stories. And I've had such a fantastic time working on the book. And that's
0: my next book that's coming out. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I feel like so many people are trying to write books. So something like that would probably be very useful.
1: I think um, so many people are trying to write books, but I've also met people who are convinced that they don't have an interesting story to tell. And that's not the case. In fact, sometimes the people who feel that they're uninteresting are the most interesting.
0: (laughs) Well, and some people are more private than others as well. Absolutely. Yep. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked and recommend?
1: Oh, um, I recently read, uh, let's see, I read... These precious days, which that's the new essay collection by Anne Patchett. And I really love that. And something else I'd like to recommend is a historical novel in verse called Call Me Athena, Girl from Detroit by Colby Cedar Smith, which was a, an award nominee this year. It's uh, about a Greek family that lives in Detroit. And it's again, a historical, but it's a novel in verse and it's
0: absolutely beautiful. I haven't heard of that one. I'm going to have to go track it down. It's great. It's fantastic. Well, good. Well, thank you so much, Ruda. I just loved your book and I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm gonna take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling
0: style. And together, we're gonna try to make sense of the world all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page Bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.
1: Hello.